Here's tech entrepreneur Andrew Yang making his pitch to voters on January 23rd in Muscatine, Iowa, ahead of the Iowa caucuses on February 3rd. The following audio comes from the Yang campaign's YouTube channel. We don't have an economy that's working for people, but we do have somebody that is offering solutions for normal people, and that is my good friend and the next president of the United States, Mr. Andrew I love it. That's a great comfortable. Hello, Muscatine. It's fantastic to be here. I'm Andrew Yang. I'm running for president. Most of you know that because you saw the TV ads. No? <laughs> we spent a lot of money on those ads, so I certainly hope some of you saw them. I'm running for president to help solve a problem that we've been wrestling with the last several years that's confused our country ever since. This problem, this question is this. Why is Donald Trump our president today? Oh really, let's like reflect on this for a moment. If you turned on cable news any time in the last number of years, why would you think that he's our president? Electoral college, yeah, that's on the list. What else is there? Russia, for sure. Immigration. Immigration. Not a politician. Disenchantment with Washington. Hillary Clinton, emails, Facebook. FBI, all sort of mixed together into some very strange potpourri. But I'm a numbers guy, Muscatine. I went looking through the numbers for an explanation, and I found one that I think will be very, very familiar to you all. We blasted away four million manufacturing jobs over the last number of years. And where were those jobs primarily located? Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, and 40,000 right here in Iowa. I've been to those towns in Iowa that lost their manufacturing jobs. You have too. And after the manufacturing jobs dried up, the shopping district closed, people started to leave, the school shrank, and that community has never recovered. I have seen the exact same thing play out in Missouri, Ohio, Michigan, Western Pennsylvania, because I spent the last seven years running a nonprofit that helped create thousands of jobs in the Midwest and the South. So these are the changes that helped get Donald Trump to win Iowa, the purplest of purple states, by almost 10 points. I mean, that's a huge shift. To me, that's something you really have to dig into. And unfortunately, what we did to the manufacturing jobs here in Iowa and throughout the Midwest, we're now doing to jobs in other parts of the economy. How many of you have noticed stores closing around where you live here in Muscatine? And why are those stores closing? Amazon, no one shopping there because of Amazon. Amazon sucking up $20 billion of business every year, closing 30% of America's stores and malls. Most common job in our economy is retail clerk. Average retail clerk is a 39-year-old woman making between eight and $12 an hour. When her store closes, what is her next job going to be? Unclear, sort of a rhetorical question. How much did Amazon pay in federal taxes last year? Zero, Zero. Zero. that is your math. 20 billion out, 30% of the stores close, you get zero back. That's this feeling you have that your communities are getting depleted and sucked dry. And it's not just the stores closing or the self-serve kiosks and the McDonald's. When you all call the customer service line of a big company and you get the bot or software, I'm sure you do the exact same thing I do. Which is you dial 000 and say, human, human, representative, representative, human, human. 
until you get someone on the phone, right? Raise your hand if that's what you do. I know we all do that because that software is miserable. We're like, there's a human working at this company somewhere and I am now going to find that person. But in two or three short years, the software is going to sound like this. Hello, Andrew, how are you? What can I do for you? It'll be fast, seamless, efficient. You might not even know it's software. What will that mean for the two and a half million Americans who work at call centers right now making 10 to $14 an hour? How many of you know a truck driver here in Iowa? Most common job in 29 states, three and a half million truckers. My friends in California are now working on trucks that can drive themselves. They tell me they're 98% of the way there. A robot truck just transported 20 tons of butter from California to Pennsylvania three weeks ago with no human intervention. Why did they choose butter for this maiden voyage? I have no idea. But if you Google robot butter truck, you will see the story online that at the end of the route was a giant stack of pancakes. As high as the eye could. No, I'm kidding about the pancakes. But everything else I said, you can look up, it's totally true. What will the robot trucks mean for the three and a half million truck drivers in our country? Or the seven million plus Americans who work at truck stops, motels, and diners that rely upon the truckers getting out and having a meal every day? How many of you have been to Iowa 80 in Davenport? Yeah, it's pretty nearby. Really good buffet. They say that 5,000 people stop at Iowa 80 every day. How many people will stop there if the trucks no longer have drivers? Maybe we'll still stop there, but that 5,000 will go down pretty quick. So the changes that happened in the manufacturing part of the economy are now shifting to retail, to call centers. It's going to be transformative. And there's a name for this transformation. It's called the Fourth Industrial Revolution. When's the last time you heard a politician say Fourth Industrial Revolution? Four seconds ago. Well, maybe if you heard me talking. And I'm barely a politician. My wife can vouch for this. If she thought that I was going to run for president when we were dating, she would have run the other direction. <laughs> Pretty open about it. <laughs> no, no, really. She's, she's, some, she's somewhere in the state, so she can tell you it's true. So these are the facts and figures I was unpacking. 2016, Trump wins. I was literally getting accolades and awards for helping create thousands of jobs in the Midwest and the South. And I had this sinking feeling that my work was like pouring water into a bathtub that had a giant hole ripped in the bottom. The water was just rushing out. The water rushing out led to Donald Trump being our president. We didn't understand it. We're scapegoating immigrants for problems that immigrants actually have very little to do with. And so I went to our leaders in DC and I asked them, what are we going to do to help our people manage this transformation? And what do you think the folks in D.C. said to me when I asked them, what are we going to do? Put, your, put that D.C. hat on, Muscatine. Job training. <laughs> that was right. So at another event, someone made like the Scooby-Doo noise. Be like, whoop, whoop, <laughs> But the three responses I got were, number one, we cannot talk about this, Andrew. Number two, we should study this further. Or number three, what you just said, we must educate and retrain all Americans for the jobs of the future. And you've all heard that, I'm sure. Raise your hand if that sounds familiar. Oh yeah, it does sound familiar. But I'm the numbers guy, and so I looked at the numbers, I said, hey, I checked out the studies. Do you all want to guess how effective the government-funded retraining programs were for the manufacturing workers that lost their jobs in the Midwest? You know it's low because I'm anchoring you low, but you also know it's low because you know human beings. You know if you have 500 manufacturing workers who lose their jobs, they don't all march out and be like, it's time for my coding program. It's time for me to learn. I've been waiting for this. 
mean, that, that's not the way human beings operate. So the real success rate was zero to 15%. They're a total dud. Almost half of the workers that lost their jobs in the manufacturing sector in the Midwest left the workforce and never worked again. Of that group, almost half filed for disability. You then saw surges in suicides and drug overdoses in those communities to the point where America's life expectancy has now declined for the last three years in a row. Know the last time that happened in the United States of America? Great Depression's a great guess. It's a little bit further than that. It's the Spanish flu of 1918, a global pandemic that killed millions. You have to go back that far because it's highly unusual for your life expectancy to decline in a developed country. It ordinarily goes up and up because you're getting richer or stronger or healthier. And the United States has gone down and then down and then down again. So I said this to the folks in DC, one of them said, well, I guess we'll get better at the retraining programs. <laughs> Another person said something that brought me here to you all today. Said, Andrew, you're in the wrong town. No one here in DC will do anything about this because fundamentally this is a town of followers, not leaders. And the only way we will do something about it is if you were to create a wave in other parts of the country and bring that wave crashing down on our heads. And I said, challenge accepted. I'll be back in two years. So that was two years ago, and now you all, you may not know this yet, but you all are the wave. You all are one of the most powerful people in our country today. Doesn't feel like it, just living your lives, coming to an event. But I did the math. Do you know how many Californians each of you is worth? A thousand Californians each. So look around this room. How many of us are there? I'm going to give a Trumpian estimate. There are 800 people here tonight. It's the biggest gathering anyone's ever seen. I think there are about 60 people. <laughs> but 60 Iowans is still one and a half football stadiums worth of Californians. That is the power you all have to do something that the rest of the country only dreams about. Our fellow Americans look up and they see our government as a series of pipes that are clogged full of money, clogged full of lobbyist cash. And they despair that there's nothing they can do about it. They're generally right. There is next to nothing they can do about it. But you all can do everything about it. You can flush the pipes clean just like that on February 3rd in 11 days. That's the magic of this place. That's why I love campaigning here because you all are one of the only places in our entire country where democracy still works as it was intended. So the question is, what are you gonna do on February 3rd? What vision you wanna to take to the rest of the country? Now, if you're here today, at some point you heard that there's a man running for president who wants to give everyone $1,000 a month. Maybe it's in the ads. I think we put in at least one ad. <laughs> and I know the first time you heard this, you thought, that's a gimmick, that will never happen, that's literally too good to be true. Raise your hand if you thought one of those things, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, very reasonable. But it's not my idea and it's not a new idea. Thomas Paine was for this at the founding of the country, called it the Citizens' Dividend for All Americans. Martin Luther King, whose birthday we celebrated on Monday, was fighting for this in the 1960s, called it the guaranteed minimum income for all Americans, and it is what he was fighting for when he was killed in 1968. I know this in part because I had the privilege of sitting with Dr. King's son in Atlanta, and he said this is what his father was fighting for. And I have to say, the, the, the most striking part of that conversation was he referred to Martin Luther King as dad. And I was like, Martin Luther King's your dad. It's like, Dad wanted this, Dad spanked with it. I was like, Dad, it's the coolest thing in the world. Your name is Martin Luther King III, so I suppose it all adds up. 
So this was mainstream in the 60s to the point that a thousand economists, including Milton Friedman, one of the forefathers of modern economic thought, said this is the way we should go in the 60s. Thousand economists endorsed it. So mainstream that it passed the U.S. House of Representatives twice in 1971 under Richard Nixon. Family assistance plan would have guaranteed an income floor for all American families. And then 11 years later, one state actually passed a dividend, where now everyone in that state gets between one and $2,000 a year, no questions asked. And what state is that? Alaska. And how does Alaska pay for it? And what is the oil of the 21st century? Data, technology, AI, self-driving cars and trucks. A new study just came out that said that our data is now worth more than oil. How many of you saw that study? How many of you got your data check in the mail last month? If our data is now worth billions of dollars a year, and we're not getting any of that value, then where's all that money going? It's going to Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, and the biggest tech companies that are paying zero or near zero in taxes. And the reason why he said Ireland is because all of those tech companies somehow earn a lot of money in Ireland. They just send all their earnings to Ireland because it's a giant tax haven. That's pretty much the economy of Ireland nowadays. I don't know if you all know this. They parked something like $120 billion overseas <laughs> in Ireland. So you're not seeing a dime. Again, all this value is leaving the communities of Iowa and going into the hands of these giant companies, including even your information that gets sold and resold all the time without you even knowing or benefiting from it. So this is what we have to do. We have to get the value that's leaving your communities and bring it back to you. And say, if anyone's gonna benefit from this, it should be you. If you get your tiny fair share of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every Facebook ad, eventually every robot truck mile, an AI work unit, you can easily afford $1,000 a month for every American. Particularly because after this money is in your hands, where does it go? How would you actually spend it in real life? How much of it would stay right here in Iowa? Most all of it. Not all of it. You might get your own Netflix password. A little bit of it's going to float up. But most of it's going to go to car repairs you've been putting off and little league signups and daycare expenses and local nonprofits and religious organizations. This is the trickle up economy from our people, our families and our communities up. And it's more vital today than ever because our economy is now at this winner take all stage that's just gonna accelerate as technology speeds up. You're getting all these messages that things are great right now, saying corporate profits, record highs, GDP, record highs, unemployment, looking great but you somehow feel like things are not going that great in your communities. So you have record high corporate profits right now. You know what else are record highs in the United States of America today? Financial insecurity, stress, anxiety, depression, substance abuse, suicides, drug overdoses. Again, corporate profits are going up and your life expectancy is going down. Which do you value? You know which one DC values. DC can't even see people in life expectancy anymore. They just see the dollars. Washington DC today is the richest city in our country. Think about that for a sec. What do they produce? Highly unclear. <laughs> but whatever their business is, business is awfully good. 
Donald Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp. I want to do something a bit different, Muscatine. I want to distribute the swamp. What do I mean by that? Why would you employ hundreds of thousands of government workers in the most expensive city in the country? Why wouldn't you move some of those jobs to Michigan, Ohio, Iowa, Pennsylvania? You would save billions of dollars off the bat, and I would argue that those regulators would make better decisions because they live someplace normal and not in the DC bubble where the only people they talk to are other agency employees. I'm for term limits for members of Congress. We should be sending people to DC to do our work and then come home. It should not be that they go there and be like, ooh, I like it here, I like it here, let me stay here as long as possible. And I know how to pass this, this is gonna be magic. So I'm gonna be your president a year from now, thank you for that. And then I'm gonna go to Congress and say, hey, we should have term limits to make you more dynamic and responsive to the will of the American people. So let's have 12 year term limits but current lawmakers are exempt. Do you think they would pass that? They would pass that the next day. They'd be like, we do this for the American people. <laughs> well, because they'd all be exempt. They'd be like, I'm like some kind of super legislator. I get to try and hang out for as long as possible. But eventually they would lose, they would age out, they would phase out, and then we'd actually have term limits in a legislature that responds to us. So we have these economic indicators that are telling us how great things are, but they're way off base. And I know this in part because of my own family. My wife Evelyn is at home every day with our boys, one of whom is autistic. How much is her work included at in our economic measurements right now? Evelyn gets a zero. So does every stay-at-home parent throughout the country. How about people taking care of aging loved ones? That's also a zero. Caregivers get a zero. How about volunteers and activists? It's the Russians, they're always trying to interrupt my events. Get it, get it, it's okay. This happens. How about activists and volunteers who are trying to make their community stronger? Also zero. How about coaches and mentors trying to invest in our kids, the next generation? Zero. 95% of artists, zero. You know one thing that we don't talk about enough, how about local journalists? We have put almost 2,000 local papers out of business over the last number of months. There are 200 counties in the United States that don't have a single newspaper. You know what doesn't function as well if you don't have local news? Democracy, that's right. Because how can you vote on what's going on in your community if you don't actually have anyone covering what's going on in your community? Muscatine, these are the things that we claim to value most in our lives. Our families, our communities, our democracy, and they are being zeroed out one by one. And we're letting them get zeroed out because we've been collectively confused to think that economic value and human value are the same things. And that if someone doesn't have economic value, then they're now valueless. Local paper, can't make money, valueless. Person who's struggling with disability, valueless. This is how you wind up in a country where we actually have people arguing we should turn coal miners into coders. And if you think about it, that doesn't really make much sense. The only reason it would make sense is if you think that market value is all there is, and if you lose market value, then we have to pretend we can transform you into something else that the market likes. And what we have to say to the rest of the country on February 3rd is that we all have intrinsic value as Americans, as citizens, and as human beings. That it's not that we all work for the economy, the economy works for us. 
That is the fundamental message we have to send to the rest of the country. We have to humanize this economy and make it so that instead of pretending that the corporate profits and our well-being are the same thing, we actually have to line up our energies to make us stronger and healthier, use economic measurements like health and life expectancy, mental health and freedom from substance abuse, clean air and clean water, proportion of Americans who can retire in quality circumstances, childhood success rates. These are the real measures of our country. And as your president, I will modernize GDP to include these other things, and I'll present the real measurements to you all at the State of the Union every year. I'll be the first president to use a PowerPoint deck in the State of the Union. We have to turn this around, and Iowa is in many ways ground zero for all of these trends we're talking about. Because you saw the mechanization and loss of jobs on the farms, then it moved to the factories, now it's on your main streets. You have to turn it around before it hits your highways. How many of you all are parents like me and Evelyn? So if you're a parent, I'm glad you guys didn't raise your hands. I mean, <laughs> if you're a parent, you've had this sinking feeling at some point in the last number of months that we're leaving a future that is less stable, less secure, and less bright for our kids in the lives that we have led. You know why we feel that way as parents? Because it's true. If you were born in the 1940s in the United States of America, there was a 93% chance that you were gonna be better off than your parents were. That's the American dream. That's what brought my family here. That's what we all aspire to leave to our kids. If you were born in the 1990s in this country, you were down to a 50-50 shot and it is declining fast. That is how Donald Trump wins Iowa by almost 10 points. Because people look up and they say, I do not feel optimistic about my future, my kids' future. This is what you all have to turn around on February 3rd. We have to leave a future we're actually proud of for our kids. And that's not just climate change, which is a big thing a lot of us think about, but it's also an economy that's designed to help them succeed. I'm not running for president because I dreamt about being president of the United States. I'm running for president because I'm a parent who has seen the future that lies ahead for our children, and it is not something I'm willing to accept. They deserve better. I will give them better if you join me on February 3rd. <laughs> Donald Trump is our president today because he had a very, very simple message. Everyone understood it. Make America great again. What did Hillary Clinton say in response? America's already great. You remember that, Muscatine? It's been a long three years, I know. But it's now coming to an end. That response did not work for many Americans because the problems are real. We have to acknowledge the depth and severity of the problems in our communities, but then we need real solutions that will help move our country forward. What were Donald Trump's solutions? Build a wall, turn the clock back, bring the old jobs back. You know that we have to do the opposite of these things. We have to turn the clock forward. We have to accelerate our economy and society to rise to the real challenges of the 21st century, like climate change. We have to evolve in the way we see ourselves and our work and our value. I am the ideal candidate for this job because the opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes math. Thank you all very much, Muscatine. Thank you. You may not know this, but math is an acronym. And what does it stand for? Make America think harder. That's right. That is your job on February 3rd. It's your job to move this country that we love, not left, not right.
but forward, and I know that's just where you will take us. Thank you all so much. Thank you, thank you, team. Look at you, this fun backdrop. All right, now we're gonna take some questions. I'll come back, you didn't miss it. I heard that. Oh, we have some questions. I think we have a mic runner, because this room is so vast and there are 900 of you, or whatever number I said. Wanna pass it up to someone? They don't have their hand up. What business do you own? I own a business called uh, Shaping Earth Digital. We do technology and software consulting, uh, trying to replace as many humans as we can. I wanted you to give it a plug, but that's cool. <laughs> um, so one of the issues we have in Iowa is uh, workforce for very skilled jobs. You know, I, I mean, we're talking to universities here and whatnot, and, and most of the people who graduate here end up moving to the coast. So we have a hard time hiring really skilled people. Uh, so one of the people we hired is from India, and we have not been able to get her a work visa. And being from India, it's, it's incredibly hard to do that. So what can we do, you know, what is your plan for, you know, places like here where it is really hard to keep these people uh, in time to hire locally? You know, because of course we want to hire locally, but if we can't, you know, we want to be able to keep the people that we're training up, I mean, you know, who are working well for us, and what can we do to home? Thank you for the question. I instinctively believe that immigrants make our, our country stronger and more dynamic. I'm gonna relate a little bit more of my family background. My parents met as graduate students at UC Berkeley in the 60s. They both immigrated from Taiwan. My father went on to get his PhD in physics. So as a kid, I thought that everyone's dad had a PhD. I would go and say, what's your dad's PhD in? And then one day one of them was like, here's what his PhD is in. And I was like, oh no, what did you wrong? So then you learn, you learn. My father went on to generate 69 U.S. patents uh, for GE and IBM, which I think was like a huge win for the country. And there was a point when I was a little older where I asked my dad, how much money do you get when you generate a patent? Because I thought it was really, you know, like a lot of money. And then he said, I get paid about $200 when I generate a patent. And I said, well, that doesn't seem like an awful lot. And he said, well, I also get paid a salary to feed, house, and clothe you and your brother. So shut up. <laughs> it's like, it's like a message. So I share this story to say that I naturally believe that immigrants make us stronger, more vibrant. And one of the things we need to do is try and compete for talent um, when someone comes and studies here from abroad. Uh, I've talked to many people who study at universities right here in Iowa who want to stay, but then we make it awfully hard for them to stay. And that to me makes very little sense. If we're going to educate you at one of our universities, we should be stapling a green card to your diploma and saying, if you're going to start a business and life and career, you should really do it here rather than send you back to compete against us. So I want to make it easier to attract and retain folks who can help make our economy stronger and more dynamic. And one of the things I do not believe at the high skill level applies, and I know this because I know companies like yours, where if he hires some folks through an H1B visa or some other program, then his business becomes more vibrant and then it's likely to grow and he's likely to hire more people. It's not a zero-sum situation where if we deny this person that he's just gonna turn around and hire someone uh, next to him here in Iowa that fits the same bill. He's trying to hire a specific group of people. So we need to try and make it easier for you to get access to the talent you want. With the, the understanding, it's like, do you want that person to get hired here or someplace else? 
because they're going to get hired one of those two places. So we have to try and make it so that they'll get hired here. I have many friends who've been on both sides of the H-1B visa program, and right now we're, we're making it way, way too hard for you to, pretty much if you're an employer here and you decide you like this person, you want them to stay, we should be bending over backwards to help you do that. And we should be trying to bring in folks uh, who want to study here to try and get them to stay here. So that's where I am on the talent side. I think that our country being a magnet for talent from around the world has been a huge competitive advantage for us. Donald Trump's been kind of a turnoff on that side. I want to go to the rest of the world and say, look, my father grew up on a peanut farm in Asia with no floor, and now I'm president of the United States. So if you come here, you actually can build a great life and uh, path for you and your family, and I want you to come and aspire to do just that. Oh, anytime you have a business owner, you should plug it. What is it? Richie, uh, Seven Life, it's a music instrument store. There right. will be no, uh, <laughs> we have to have people <laughs> playing music, right? But my day job on top of owning this business here is also working um, for the state. With the unemployment and we're going to the state Right. I love this question so much. I am pro-union at every level. Uh, the fact is unions have been like a fortress for Americans to have the right treatment, compensation, benefits. And that fortress has gotten smaller and smaller over the last number of years, and the storm has gotten more and more intense. So I think these right-to-work laws you know, need to go. At the federal level, I would do everything I can to help protect workers' rights to organize. The fact is, in a vacuum, workers would organize, but then employers are making it very, very hard for you in every, every turn. Uh, and, you know, we have to try and balance the scales. This freedom dividend I'm championing was actually proposed by Andy Stern, who used to run the SEIU. And he said that this would be a game changer for workers because it would just make us much, much more free and harder to push around and exploit. So I appreciate everything you're doing in public worker, uh, public um, employee union. My mom worked for a state university and uh, had a very, very similar setup. I think that's really, really vital to have a middle class that will stand the test of time, particularly for people who are working in government roles like you are. Also, music store, that's cool. You think there'll be more music if uh, we had a little bit more time? I think so. <laughs> I Everything I hear you say with regards to the economy and treatment of people absolutely makes sense. One thing I wonder about is we're in such a complex situation now with foreign policy and all the geopolitical conflict. As someone who probably hasn't had a lot of experience in that arena, what would be your selling point or your proposition for why you'd be the best presidential candidate to handle those issues? Thank you for this question. I think it's really, really important. 
So for some context, 75% of Americans want nothing to do with war with Iran. So why were we at the brink of war with Iran? Because Congress has given up their constitutional authority to declare war to the executive branch for the last 19 years and counting. And so we've been in a constant state of armed conflict over that time. I would return to our constitutional principles, tear up the AUMF, and say, look, Constitution says it's for Congress to declare war, so it should be for Congress to declare war. It should not be the executive branch that's entangling us in foreign theaters around the world. James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, said, if we invest more in diplomats, then we can spend less on ammunition. And that is exactly where we should be driving. We spent over $6 trillion in the Middle East, over $1 trillion in Iraq, and I've talked to hundreds of veterans who've struggled ever since with injuries, PTSD, uh, and inability to find a path forward. So when you ask about me and, and, and my outlook as Commander-in-Chief, first, I want to be more hard-nosed and realistic about our foreign commitments. Second, I want to make sure we invest in our people. Instead of an extra aircraft carrier, I want to treat our veterans right. Third, I'm laser focused on solving the real problems of the 21st century, and right now our military industrial complex is not really geared towards those threats. What are the greatest threats of the 21st century, if you had to just spitball? Climate change, artificial intelligence and cybersecurity, loose nuclear material, and proliferation of military drones in the hands of non-state actors. Uh, we're now reaching a point where American military drone dominance is ending, and there are many, many other organizations that have access to these drones. And it is very, very hard to secure an American location from something the size of a flying vacuum cleaner, because that's what you're looking at. So these problems, many of them have a real technological bent. Trying to maintain our competitiveness in artificial intelligence with the Chinese strikes me as a vital national security priority, and I have a much clearer read on what we need to do in that realm than anyone else who's running. So what I'd say to my, my outlook as Commander-in-Chief, I believe I have the right temperament, values, and priorities to try and lead us in the right direction, and I also have a much firmer sense of our challenges that we need to be trying to head off before they become even more significant. And I, I think that that outlook actually separates me from the rest of the field. Pretty much the stuff you like about me and the economy, it's over there too. <laughs> it's a lot of it's just understanding what the facts are and the judgment. Yep. My name is Shelley Sergio Elias. My husband and I own an art store downtown. So many people own businesses. I love it. That's right. Uh, that's what makes Mustaking so beautiful and special. Yes. Uh, we all, all the businesses here, work together and we help each other out. We're a great community. Uh, so, um, but I did want to just talk about veterans a little bit. So, um, a lot of the things you also talked about uh, with humanity and how we kind of zero out there. My husband and I also have a disabled son that's 22. He has microcephaly, and we take turns being caregivers for him. Sure. I'm also an activist. I go to the Capitol. I would. I'm on my way back home today. I just got back from Des Moines. I wrote a bill, the Veterans and Crisis Care Act for suicidal veterans. And. It's not about me, it's about the people that were trying to save lives. 
so I don't deserve that applause. It's gonna take a whole team and it's gonna be a heavy lift. And I did get a GOP sponsor today for that bill, so it's gonna get into the subcommittee. And that's all that matters, we just gotta get it moving. So, but my question is, um, for veterans at the federal level, we need to get them access to cannabis. So it's gonna require Commander-in-Chief to have the guts to take on that swamp and get in there and do an executive order and change federal scheduling guidelines. Oh yeah. CSA guidelines. I, I just wanna say. The the FDA, everything, yes, everybody. Yes. Someone has to have the courage to take control of this mess and say that instead of all of these different regulatory agencies saying that they make the law, yep. obey the law. Can you be that commander in chief to do that? Uh, I will be so excited to be that commander in chief. We need to get marijuana off of the controlled substance list and legalize it at the federal level and make it freely available. And I say this because I've talked to hundreds of veterans and other Americans who benefit from marijuana as a pain relief treatment. And it's much less deadly than the opiates that many, many people are using for the same conditions. I've talked to veterans who also benefited from psilocybin mushrooms. Now they said that this is the only thing that actually has uh, helped combat their PTSD. I'm for legalizing psilocybin mushrooms for veterans as well. Pretty much, if it's going to help a veteran, we should make it easier, not harder, for them to get access to it. But marijuana in particular, I just want to legalize at a federal level and then pardon everyone who's in jail for a nonviolent marijuana-related offense because they shouldn't be in jail for something that's frankly legal in other parts of the country. Uh, and I would pardon them all on April 20th, 2021. High <laughs> five them all on the way out of jail. You'd be like, things got a lot better in the last year. <laughs> So one, one thing that I don't hear addressed a lot, and I think would help with a lot of the issues that we're seeing, you know, that people have all their different issues, climate change, um, healthcare, you know, veterans rights, things like that. But the, the difficulty I see is getting anything past the corporate sponsors. Yeah. So campaign finance reform. And I'll, and I'll sit down. No, 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 I, this is really the question. This is a very practical question. It's like, okay, I get it, we agree. How the heck can we actually get this stuff done? So I'm, I'm going to play this out for you because it's fun. I've been thinking about it for a long time now. So we're going to shock the world on February 3rd, thanks to you all. New Hampshire, we got a lot of support in New Hampshire. The third party in New Hampshire is Libertarians, and Libertarians love a lot of what we're talking about here. Um, because economic resource in people's hands make us freer, stronger. So, I become your president, and Democrats and progressives will be so excited to work with the new president. But I can also get some Republicans and conser conservatives who see some of the same problems and are excited to make progress, and they see me as someone they can work with. If you talk to Republicans and say, hey, how do you feel about Amazon paying zero in taxes? They're not like, yeah, the American way. You know, like they look at that and be like, wow, that doesn't make any sense. So we can try and solve some of these problems in a bipartisan way, uh, but fundamentally, we have to break the stranglehold of lobbyists on our legislature. Right now, it just has too many people running scared. So here is one way we can do that. One, if you have term limits 
for members of Congress, it'll actually free them up to do the right thing much more because they'll literally be going home next year. So they're like, or at this point, I might as well just do the right thing and stand up to the drug companies, stand up to um, military industrial complex or whoever it is. But number two, we have to somehow get the corporate money out of politics. And so many, many people talk about overturning Citizens United, that terrible ruling that said that corporate money and dark money is free speech and the rest of it. And it was a terrible ruling and we need to overrule it. But the fact is, corporate money ran Washington even before Citizens United, and corporate money will always find its way back in. So here's the fix. Right now, 5% of Americans donate to political campaigns and candidates because it's just not something that a lot of us do. So if you do do that, then that's great. That puts you in the top 5% of Americans in terms of political commitment. So thank you. Here's what we have to change. I propose that we put 100 democracy dollars in the hands of every American voter every year, use it or lose it. So if you don't use it, it disappears, you just get it again the next year. But if you use it, it goes to the candidate or campaign that you want to support. Right now, it's 5% of Americans donating to candidates. What would it be if everyone had 100 free dollars? Well, not 90%, because Americans are lazy this way. I mean, come on. But what do you think it would be? Maybe 50. Maybe 50, that's right. You might be able to get 50% of Americans to give their 100 democracy dollars to some candidate that they like or campaign they like. But even that 50% at $100 each would wash out the lobbyist cash by a factor of four or five to one. So if I get 10,000 people behind me, that's a million dollars. And then when the company says, hey, I've got $50,000 for you, you'd be like, I don't want to piss off the people that are giving me the million, so you're, I'm going to ignore your 50000 and then we can even free up our legislators from doing the most corruptive thing that's breaking our backs, which is dialing for dollars. It's like as soon as they win, the party leaders lock them in a room and are like, hey, you want to get reelected, you have to call everyone and raise this much money. I genuinely think that a lot of these legislators must really dislike their families. <laughs> Seriously. It's just like, wait a minute, what? Like, Tom, I should be spending with my family, you're gonna lock me in a room and I'm just gonna call and badger rich people for money? So if you get these democracy dollars in, then all of a sudden it like changes the incentives for these legislators. Then it'll be much more trying to do the right thing on our behalf. There are so many things we have to do to try and get a hold of our government. So we've got term limits, we've got these democracy dollars. We have to end the revolving door between regulators and government. I would say you're not allowed to work for industry for 10 years after you're a regulator because right now, as soon as you get to government, they're trying to wave money at you. And then as your president, I would pledge to never my entire life do a paid speech that benefits me personally. Because if you're gonna change the culture in Washington, D.C., it has to start at the top. If people see the president schmoozing with CEOs and getting paid a quarter of a million dollars for an hour's work, they look around and are like, I guess that's the way we do things. So if you wanna change the corporate, the, the corporations running our government, it has to start at the top. The president has to say, look, after I'm your president for eight years, I will leave this town and you will never hear from me again. And it shouldn't be the same for the regulators. Now, that, so that's my plan. I'm going to be your president for eight years, do everything I can, just tear all the stuff out, root and stem, uh, that needs to get torn out. And then, you know, then I'll just walk into the sunset. <laughs> Like that kind of, I don't know what movie character I was in that scene, but whatever. All right, we're gonna have one last question. How are you doing, Andrew? Hello. All right, 
so my question is, what are your plans for, for our food regulation? Because I follow our food supply right now and it's not looking good with all the deregulation going on now with the Trump administration and stuff and clean water. I've seen like a thousand pesticides got approved by the, um, by the whoever handled that. But I just want to know what's your plans for regulating the food to make sure we actually get some healthy food in our lives. Well, this is a very multifaceted question that I really love. And as a parent, you know, I mean, as parents are always trying to figure out what we're feeding to our kids. So water is its own issue. We have, at this point, unfortunately, hundreds of American communities that have water that's now of, of, of like eroding quality and safety. So you think about Flint, Michigan, which is obviously one of the most extreme examples, but the same thing's happening in South Carolina. Same thing's happening in Ohio. Because we have this aging infrastructure that we've not invested in properly, and it's becoming increasingly negative for our water supply. So that's something, as your president, I will be delighted to undertake. Because one of the things that I find embarrassing about our country is that we're not investing in our infrastructure to the right level. I thought Trump would get this right, just to put his name on stuff. You know? Be like, Trump this, Trump that. I'd be like, whatever, man. Sure, <laughs> just build it. But he's left more for us to do. So water is its own thing, and water is going to become an increasing issue with climate change, unfortunately. Like having access to drinking water is going to be a very, very big deal. On the food side, I would want to do everything I can to support producers who are trying to do the right thing. Uh, so that's small farmers, people that want to, to raise livestock and crops in healthy ways that make it easier for us to frankly trust the food we're eating. But right now, everything's about this massive like industrial policy, and that includes the farms, you know, and then as soon as you get the industrial concern in there, then there's like, hey, you know, I think we can do this a little cheaper, <laughs> do this, 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 um, and it ends up having negative effects on our food supply over time. So I, I, I'm 100% with you. You know, I would, for example, appoint a head of the EPA that actually believes in the EPA. You know, I would, I would, <laughs> no, it's like the, there are some vital things that government needs to fulfill. To me, it's like government, you want to do a few things well, ideally. Um, but food and water has to be one of the things that they do. <laughs> like that, that's something we actually need to get our arms around in a very, much, much bigger way. All right, thank you, Musketeer.